Hey Kim, when I say it's great to be on with you, maybe I always say that because it is always great, but it's particularly great because it's been a while and uh, you've been very busy with important things. Can you tell our listeners uh, what you've been doing this past year plus, as it turned out? Well, Mike, it's so great to be back in conversation and to be uh, together on our podcast once again. Yeah, I had the incredible privilege of serving for about a year in the Biden administration, working in the White House with the Office of Management and Budget and the Domestic Policy Council, helping to implement President Biden's executive order on equity. It was uh, an extraordinary opportunity to work with federal agencies to help them create equity action plans and involves so much of what we talk about on this podcast, about how one thinks about change, how one brings people together, how you identify differences of opinion or even value differences that people have, but create opportunities using tools from leadership and from negotiation uh, for shared value and for shared purpose. So it was a really incredible experience and uh, one that I will treasure uh, for a long time to come. At the end of President Obama's term, you were in the White House in his administration. Your focus at that point was equity, for women and girls. That's exactly right. And so this was an even broader initiative, correct? It's true. And that work was equally a privilege and quite wonderful. Also a career highlight for me. You know, in the Obama administration, we were thinking about advancing equity. That was the name of the initiative for women and girls of color. And we were working, I think, with a a value set that was very resonant with what we also had during the Biden Hmm. uh, administration during my time there. But one of the differences, and this goes to an issue that is so critical about the technical dimensions of leadership and then the adaptive and learning uh, dimensions of mobilizing change. So during the time in the Biden administration, we had an executive order. We actually had a very affirmative use of presidential authority that directed agencies to do this work of creating equity action plans. And when you have that as a powerful wind behind you, uh, and you also have the capacity to do the adaptive work, it's a very powerful combination. Well, uh, thank you so much for your uh, service, for doubling down twice now uh, on that. I have great admiration for the work that you do. And I also have gratitude for uh, the fact that you have found for us today, Rob Garris, who I have yet to meet. Can you say a little bit more uh, so that our listeners uh, have a sense of who he is and what he does? And they may uh, be surprised that we're tapping this uh, you know, really remarkable individual for insights about adaptive leadership. So Rob Garris is an extraordinary uh, leadership uh, professional teacher and uh, develops innovative programs. He's worked at Johns Hopkins, at Columbia, the Rockefeller Foundation, and he's now at Trinity Church Wall Street. And there he's the executive director of a brand new leadership development program called the Trinity Leadership Fellows. And that sits within the Leadership Development Initiative at Trinity Wall Street. And he's going to, I'm so thrilled he's with us today in this program. 
She's going to tell us about not only why it's crucial to look to the clergy and to lay leaders who are in communities and working closely uh, with communities, uh, but also managing some of the toughest values challenges that are out there. He's going to explain uh, how they came to create this program and what it entails. And fair disclosure, I have the privilege of serving on the advisory board uh -huh. uh, for this initiative. Well, that's great, Kim. Uh, without further ado, then, let's invite him in. Welcome, Rob. Very glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And Rob, this is a first-time encounter for me. I'm looking forward to learning from you. I know that you've collaborated with Kim in the past. Absolutely, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Rob, tell us about this new initiative at Trinity Church. And tell us about Trinity Church, too, uh, because it has its own unique history and place in New York City. What I'll do is I'll start with Trinity Church because I think that helps to explain why Trinity has decided to step into this space of, of leadership development. Trinity's is a, is a very old church. It was founded in the late 1600s, um, shortly after the English took over Manhattan and, and all of New York. And um, at the time, of course, it was an Anglican church, part of the Church of England. To make sure that the church got along well, the Queen of England early in the 1700s gave Trinity a fairly large land grant of over 200 acres in lower Manhattan. And over the years, that land has built up into a, an endowment, a set of assets for Trinity Church, um, well over $7 billion, oh my. <laughs> which is unusual for a single parish church um, to have those sorts of resources. It's, it's really nothing but the luck of location and some good and careful management over the centuries since then. But what Trinity does with those assets is, um, is that it's dedicated to the concept of the church as being a center of service to its neighborhood and its community. So huh. Trinity actually has a fairly active grant-making program to support organizations around New York City. That grant-making in New York City is focused on, on two major areas, racial justice and housing and homelessness. But Trinity also does grant-making to support the church itself, meaning the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church, in two fronts. One of them is a very Trinity-like activity, grants to help other religious institutions tap into the value of their real estate to fund their mission and their service to their neighborhoods. And then another area of grant making, which is the initiative that I lead, is to promote leadership development for people of faith, both clergy and ordained, and um, to help train clergy who both are good leaders within the church as an institution, but also are leaders in their communities and, and fit into this broader concept of a church as a center of service and a resource for its community and its congregation. So Rob, I think this is the first time we've had someone mention the Queen of England and <laughs> centuries of uh, practice, which is uh, terrific for us to hear about both the church and this innovative set of activities so critical at this particular moment in time as so many institutions are thinking about equity and so many especially younger people are rethinking what it means to uh, have a service orientation and uh, to dedicate their lives in service so why a leadership training program and why now this is such a challenging period of history in this country well, the why now is a direct reflection both of what's happening in society and also what's happening 
with the church, um, with churches in general. It's, it's not news to anyone that we're, that the world is secularizing very rapidly. Um, attendance at churches is dropping quickly. And there's a, a real sense of a, a deeper need for engagement between the church and the community um, of, of relevance, of service to the community and, and being engaged with what it is that people need in their lives. There was a recognition that the current training systems for leaders in the church were doing a great job of some of the traditional areas of theology and biblical studies and pastoral care for people's individual needs, but were seriously overlooking the leadership roles that clergy and lay leaders play both in their congregations and in their neighborhoods and in their communities. Rob, can you say more about what those roles are? Clergy have, have always played leadership roles within their congregations, um, helping the congregation work together to serve the needs of, of that church. But clergy have also, for centuries, played important leadership roles in their communities, both as, as moral leaders and ethical leaders on those issues. But many churches, Protestant churches, Catholic churches, and other faiths as well, serve their neighborhoods through a variety of social programs, whether they're providing services for the homeless, food, services for battered women, educational services for children. So clergy are active in many fronts, both in their congregations and in the world outside the church. And when you were thinking about this new initiative, uh, how did it develop? How did you get from, uh, we see the secularization, uh, we know that there's uh, oh, there are these important moral leadership roles that our clergy are performing in the community. How did you go from there to, what is a very sophisticated multi-year leadership program. Can you take us through your design process? Yeah, glad to. It The concept started off, quite frankly, um, focused much more on what I would describe as managerial and technical skills, the sorts of things that, um, that people very definitely need, how to manage financial assets, how to manage real estate assets, how to work with a board in, in the church context that's called a vestry, and those are very definitely needs, and there were, those are needs that weren't being addressed in the existing education systems for clergy. But so we that would be like the ability to address a technical problem and to have the expertise needed to make progress on that technical issue area. Exactly. But on, on the other things that I mentioned about the roles that clergy play in their neighborhoods and in society, those aren't really technical skills. Those are, are much more adaptive leadership skills where you're working in a very complicated context that's constantly changing. It's not about a technical quick fix. And we recognized that we needed to be working on both of those fronts, that we needed to build a leadership development program that provided people with the technical and managerial skills that they definitely need, articulate those skills in a faith context, but also layer that with other things like community organizing, change management, social entrepreneurship, that really address the roles that clergy and people of faith are playing in the broader world. There's a very close overlap between negotiation leadership. I wonder whether, to some degree, the people you're educating become, they're decision makers, but they're also mediators. Am I just seeing things through my uh, thick negotiation glasses, or do you encounter that? You're absolutely right, and, and you um, pointed out one of the key skills that we think clergy and lay leaders in the church need to develop, whether it's dealing with disagreements over maybe less controversial issues like what a church should do with a building and the best way to use that building to serve the community, 
or on more divisive issues that are that are really tearing some churches apart, human sexuality, political divisions, how to deal with immigration and immigrants in a community or in a congregation. That capacity to negotiate, to deal with conflict is absolutely central to the skills that clergy need to be effective leaders in their congregations or in their communities. So they have to have those technical skills, those managerial capacities, but also, uh, as our friend and colleague Ron Heifetz would say, uh, to develop a, a stomach for being able to be with people, accompany them through uncertainty and through very different perspectives on the world and what could be. Absolutely. And what I'm going to say now applies to faith leaders, but I think it's also true in a lot of the nonprofit world and, and is essential to a lot of what Ron Heifetz writes about in adaptive leadership. Leaders have to understand that conflict is part of change, be mm. comfortable with that conflict, know how to manage the conflict so that you can create progress and keep people together and focused on a goal. And and I and I feel like in, in my experience working in the nonprofit world before I came to work for Trinity and my knowledge of the church, I've been an Episcopalian most of my life, um, in those two contexts, leaders and, and others as well, I don't think are comfortable with conflict and feel like something's wrong when there's conflict rather than seeing the conflict as a natural part of a change process. So that means really working with people in a different way, a different mindset, but also to develop a, a different set of uh, skills and capacities. How did you begin to think about encouraging that in the design of your program? It's a two-year program, I think. Is that right? That's right. It's a, I'll say a little bit about the Trinity Leadership Fellows Program. It's one year of curriculum where there's a series of courses that the fellows engage in, um, and, and those courses cover both technical skills and, and broader adaptive leadership skills. Um, and then the second year of the program isn't um, course related, but it continues their process of deepening their ties with each other as a peer network who are going to support each other in their journey mm -hmm. of faith leaders for the rest of their lives. And also in the second year, working with a mentor, they tackle some sort of leadership challenge in their institution or some sort of developmental challenge that they've identified through the coursework as a key skill or characteristic that they need to work on. So the second, the second year of the program is um, very much individualized to each of the fellows and to their needs, either as a leader or their institutional needs, but is still a very important part of the learning process. It's almost like they move from learning in class to um, acting on that learning in the workplace. I've been mulling for the last couple of minutes what Kim has said of having the, quote, stomach to be in the midst of all of this. Uh, mediators, if I think about them in a conventional way, uh, typically have no skin in the game. They are neutrals as best they can be. And even in that setting, they have to be present with conflict, present in the sense of not being distracted by it and not being consumed by it, but at the same time being deeply attentive. I would think that if you were a priest or rabbi or some other kind of, of leader where you've got your own convictions and sentiments, uh, it's all the harder to, to build consensus. What, what do you teach people about that struggle and how to make the best of things? You know, Michael, I think there are, there are different ways to approach that depending on the context and the resources at hand. 
um, the, the faith leader, the clergy person might step back and bring in a neutral party mm-hmm. to help with that mediation. You know, if the, if there's a person available, if there are financial resources available, depending on the nature of the conflict. But I, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll quote or paraphrase my boss at Trinity, the rector, Phil Jackson. And I've heard him say this in a number of settings. It's the primary role of a priest, of a clergy person, to make sure that everyone in the congregation knows that they're loved. Hmm. And when there's conflict, working through that conflict in a way that shows love and respect for all of the parties is the foundation of moving things forward and finding solutions. And, and, and Phil has a lot of experience doing that in his career, career. so he's speaking from um, real experience and authority on that front. But I think it's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a perspective that transfers well to other contexts outside the church. People might not use the love language, but the respect side of that is important. And uh, a leader who's trying to work through that conflict by showing the respect, showing the care for all of the parties who are engaged in the conflict, I think already has done a lot of work to move forward simply by giving the respect and the care. Rob, you're right, of course, that we tend not to use the love language in uh, business or even nonprofit context, which, as you talk about it, uh, makes me feel sad that we don't, because there is something about uh, delighting in another person. There is something about uh, seeing yourself as in relation to them uh, that is both a, a part of respect, but goes so much beyond that. So. Um, I do think that there's a lot for those of us who aren't working in faith traditions uh, to learn from your leadership programs uh, and maybe even be able to borrow, maybe with slightly different language, what we might uh, do elsewhere. Kim, I wonder whether uh, if it's tough to use the L word for love in these other settings, uh, we can warm it up a bit with respect and empathy, being attentive to other people's needs, their strengths, uh, maybe as well their shortcomings, all of that filtering in. Then I think we can generalize from what we're talking about here. I believe that in some Quaker communities, they seek consensus, but consensus doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is in full agreement. But it does mean that people who don't agree understand that they've been heard and understand that people that they respect and admire have a different point of view. And as a consequence, they won't stand in the way. Uh, It's always struck me that that's a middle ground is the wrong word, but it's an interesting perspective where somebody is not getting what they want, but is actually okay with the fact that others have deliberated carefully, have heard their concerns and so forth and come to a different conclusion. That's right. And, and I think we've all read lots about the importance of, of emotional intelligence in leadership in the mm-hmm. workplace. And we're talking about very similar dynamics between a leader and a team. And when someone is empathetic, it doesn't mean that everyone on the team gets their way. It doesn't mean that everyone on the team is necessarily even happy with an outcome, but it does mean that the leader has taken the time to listen and understand and care and bring people along in a change that's underway. So Rob, let me ask how uh, you're taking this work uh, forward with the, the fellows. 
you, you know, so you've built it. Did they come? Uh, did, did I, I know you have some new fellows uh, who are joining you, but uh, tell us about the people who applied, not, not necessarily the specifics, but what did you learn from the application process? And maybe you can share with us a bit of who's in your first inaugural cohort. One of the things that we learned was that there was a huge hunger for this kind of opportunity, a, a hunger mm -hmm. for leadership education that's deeply grounded in faith and in a value system, and also a hunger for a community or being a part of a group of people who share a perspective on how to heal the world and who are going to help each other develop the skills that they need to heal a broken world. So um, the, the response was, was really remarkable. In this first year, we targeted our outreach primarily in the United States. It's a new program, and we wanted to just step carefully first into a context that we live in and, and know. But despite the fact that we targeted that marketing to the United States and got an overwhelming response um, from clergy and from lay people in this country who wanted to become part of this program, part of this community, we also got response from around the world. We had an applicant mm. um, um, from Africa. The Anglican Church is strong in Africa, so that's not surprising. India. We had one person from Iran, um, a Muslim, apply to join this mm -hmm. program, which is open to all faiths. So word got out and the response was strong. And I think that's because there is a real hunger for this kind of program that offers you practical skills and mindsets, but those skills and mindsets that are grounded in a community and in a value system that people honor and, and want to have part of their lives and their leadership. Mm -hmm. As you were meeting with applicants and reading their materials, uh, you know, this is a very particular moment in time. There's a lot of distrust in institutions out there. As you mentioned, a lot of challenges around equity. And Trinity Church is both committed to the community, but also has a lot of important assets. What did you hear from applicants about where they hope to, to develop in their leadership journeys? We The strongest thing we heard, Kim, is um, that they want community. And, mm -hmm. and I don't want to distract from the importance and the hard work that's gone into building the curriculum, and we're very excited about that and know that the fellows are as well. But if I answer your question honestly, the thing that we heard the most is that they want peers who share in their values and share in their passion for doing the work of the gospel for those who are Christian, um, not just in their congregations, but in the world. And um, and that was that was the top thing that we heard very clearly and very strongly. But the other thing that we heard was that real dedication to outward facing ministry, to ministry that serves both a parish and a congregation, but also serves the community and the world. So I'm curious. I'd, I'd like to hear a few examples, uh, Rob. You know, I'll give you these examples without naming names because I don't have their permission to tell their stories. But um, there's a a fantastic fellow coming into the class who um, has dedicated his work over the last several years in South Africa. He's a priest in South Africa to weaving together the youth ministry programs in his city, which still were divided along racial lines, mm. um, reflecting a long history in the city. There was no 
direct hostility or, or clash or disagreement between those youth ministry programs, but just reflect, reflecting the country's difficult history, they were still very much segregated by color. And um, his bishop asked him to turn his really strong interpersonal skills and his experience in youth ministry to creating an integrated and coherent youth ministry program for the city. And that was challenging. People don't like change. People um, like doing what they've been doing for a long time. Mm. And he constantly reminded them of their shared identity as Christians and of their shared passion for service to their city. And by bringing them back to that shared and common interest, there's now a thriving and fully integrated youth ministry program across that city that's engaging in service to their communities and their neighborhoods. We have a, a priest coming in from the West Coast of the United States who worked with her congregation and her neighborhood to build a shelter for homeless people in their neighborhood and went about doing that in a neighborhood that's gentrifying and has all of the tensions of gentrification um, in a way that was grounded in the faith and the values of her congregation, but also the values of the people who've been in that neighborhood for a long time. And she just demonstrated, you know, on her own, her remarkable leadership skills to, again, to what we were discussing earlier, Michael, to deal with conflict and to walk people through the tensions and the disagreements, but to keep them focused on a shared goal and a shared vision. And the, and the last person I'll name is someone who works outside the church. Um, he's a, a young tech entrepreneur in Washington, D.C., and he's built a, a small nonprofit organization, a group of people who are thinking about the right way to lead through their faith in the workplace. Uh, a lot of people now, and I think appropriately so, are careful about not proselytizing in the workplace, but they want to find the right way to keep their values out front. And, and he and I were talking about the fact that really effective leaders keep their values out front so that everyone understands how the values are driving decisions. And he's working with a group of young professionals in Washington, D.C. on finding the right balance between articulating your values without stepping into the uncomfortable space of proselytizing in a multicultural world where many people come from different faiths and many, many people um, don't have a faith at all. And, and he's doing really remarkable work on that front. Two things, Rob. One is you alluded earlier, if I heard you correctly, to the fact that people who are coming to your program are eager to be with peers and to learn from one another. And as you described some of these people, with all due respect to you and your curriculum and so forth, they're bringing a lot to the table. It must be wonderful just to witness that. Absolutely. And, and I think that is the way that faith leaders can, can lead in the world. And, and then if people are curious to know more, they can ask and you can share. But leading with your values out front is the right way for, I think, for everyone to go about this, not just for clergy, not just for um, Christians. So, Rob, uh, I read an, an article about you a, a while back, and you were described as someone who lives and breathes leadership. I know you have a, a, a CV that includes creating other leadership programs at, at other very important institutions as well. But what are your insights about the difference in a faith-based context? What does it need to take up that maybe we don't take up in a, an MBA program or an MPA program in a policy school? Is there a content or is it just a... A, a, an attitude or a mindset? 
it's much more of an attitude and a mindset. And, and I think that um, there, there are two dimensions that I'd like to discuss on that front. I alluded to one earlier, but um, in the faith context, there is a, a discomfort with conflict and a, a discomfort with um, enacting challenging decisions in both the church context and in, in many nonprofit organizations. Um, the, the desire to be nice gets in the way of producing results. Um, I don't think that's a challenge in a lot of the business world. Um, but what I, what I hope to do through this leadership program is create an environment where people understand that conflict and difficult decisions are part of all environments that we work in, that there's nothing wrong with conflict, there's nothing wrong with difficult decisions. And as long as we are making progress towards the goals and enacting those decisions in ways that reflect our values and our faith, that's fine. But we have to be clear that we're using our values, we're using our faith to work through those difficult decisions. But progress towards the goal is critical, in particular, if your goal is one that reflects your values. So, so that tension between positive values that are about caring for people and conflict and difficult decisions is, is something that I think faith leaders in particular need to be much more comfortable with. But I would also make that statement about leaders in the nonprofit world. I agree completely. I do think that there is resonance uh, across many different elements of what you're saying uh, for the nonprofit uh, community as well. You know, I wanted to ask you one other question, going back to the social justice mission of the church and your attention to leadership for equity. Can you tell us a little more? This is something we're hearing quite a lot, uh, particularly from uh, early career folks, of really wanting to think about what are the leadership capacities needed to generate uh, more equity in our communities. How are you all addressing that in your program? So equity is is an important value at Trinity Church Wall Street, and therefore it's an important value in the Trinity Leadership Fellows Program. The way that we're going to approach this in the program is keeping equity at the front of the conversation in all of the classes and with the group, but recognizing that the equity challenges that the leaders in our program and that leaders around the world face are going to be different in their different contexts. We have mm. candidates in this program coming from, as I mentioned, South Africa, someone from Tanzania, from the United Kingdom, and from all over the United States in big cities and rural communities. The specific equity challenges that they're going to face are going to be very different. Um, what they have to do is keep that equity as a value and a priority at the front of all the decision making. So as a leader has to make human resources decisions, financial decisions, real estate decisions, decisions that are about strategy and goals, keeping equity at the front of those decisions is the right way to go about it. But it's not about leaning into um, one particular issue in equity or a different particular issue in equity or prioritizing those. I don't think you can do that in the abstract. That has to be done in the specific context. Rob, could you give me just one example of that? I am very intrigued with what you're saying, and I don't underestimate the challenges that your people encounter, but the fact that there is a sense of community obviously is an asset. And, you know, in, in businesses, maybe particularly small ones, there can be 
uh, true we're all in it together and we have responsibilities ethic, you know, if, if that can be done in a large organization, hats off and a deep bow to people that make that happen. But I'd be interested in hearing a specific example of, uh, of something to promote equity that Trinity has done and what the challenges were and how they were overcome. So the two areas that Trinity decided to focus on through a long strategy process, thinking about what the needs of New York City are, but also where the talents and the resources of Trinity Church were, hmm. are racial justice and housing and homelessness. Trinity has leaned heavily into those two areas in our work in New York City in a wide variety of ways through grant making, but also through direct engagement. The work that we're doing, for example, on housing and homelessness is focused in um, very heavily on breaking the cycle of um, between the prison system and homelessness. Um, I won't go deep into the details right. on this, but many people, when they are released from prison, very rapidly end up being on the streets in this city. And we're looking as one of the areas of homelessness that we're working on, on how to break that cycle and how to do that in a collaborative way with the justice system, with the housing system, with neighborhoods, bringing all of the stakeholders together to break that cycle of constant movement between homelessness in the streets and the prison system. So Rob, I hear in this something that's so resonant with the work you know I did uh, with the Biden administration in helping to implement the president's executive order on equity of looking at institutions, be it those that are involved with justice or housing uh, or health, thinking about the systems of organizations from hiring to procurement. And as you say, putting equity at the forefront in everything you're thinking about, and then bringing those technical skills, as well as those skills of being able to hold and keep people company through conflict as so critical to uh, the equity agenda that the church has, and uh, that I think many communities have adopted uh, over uh, a long period of time, but maybe most especially uh, over the last couple of years. I couldn't agree with you more that the that equity will look different in different places and that your fellows are poised to learn quite a lot from one another. I, I hear how critical it is for them to keep one another company. Um, and we really look forward to hearing uh, from you uh, about them and, and their journey forward. There's one other thing I'd, I'd like to share with you about the fellows and the fellows program that I think is key to this equity question that we're talking about. Um, before they start the formal curriculum and the classes, in person, face-to-face -face here at Trinity Church, we're going to bring them together for a workshop where we'll collaboratively work with them to create an articulation of their faith and their value system mm -hmm. and how that affects their leadership decision-making. They'll then write that up as a statement of their faith, values, and leadership and they will use those statements to hold each other honest, not just during the two years that they're together as fellows, but for the rest of their lives as a peer network so that they can say to each other, you said that your faith gives you social justice as a priority. Tell me how you're using that to make decisions this year in your ministry at your church. Or you said that your faith puts peace 
and healing as your top priority as a value. Explain to me how you're using that value to make your decisions in your nonprofit organization. So that, um, that commitment to each other is not just a fuzzy commitment of support, but a com- commitment to act as each other's conscience in their leadership. Kim, you're the psychologist. I'm not. But I understand that there's research that says that writing something down, uh, there is something about the physical act, uh, you know, of, of writing down a commitment, an aspiration or whatever, doesn't make us 100% honorable necessarily, but it pushes us in the right direction. Yes, I think you're talking about the work of James Pennebaker, uh-huh. uh, who has done quite a lot of work. He's a social psychologist on writing and the act of writing, as you say, as a critical way of making um, values, intentions manifest. His work has shown that there's uh, a, a lot of impact, including on one's physical health, uh, a link between huh. what you not just say, but what you write and how you then uh, live those values, including those that pertain to health. Well, I, I knew it in a general sense, and now you have um, pushed me a little bit. I'll write something down right now uh, to ask you to give uh, me some more references. And what Rob has shared with us, uh, obviously, beyond the, if you will, the intellectual and social part of it is uh, is so inspiring. It's nice to have a dose of, of that. I want to thank Rob, but if you have a last question or comment, I suggest that you, uh, you put it here. So Rob, as you've developed the Trinity Leadership Fellows Program, as you've been in a design process with colleagues from uh, university settings, from faith traditions, uh, what has surprised you the most huh. during your journey to setting up this program? I'm going to take a second to reflect on that. Sure. The thing that surprised me the most about this design process was the willingness of so many people from so many different perspectives to learn and adapt to build a unified and coherent program together. We have on this team working together people from all sorts of faiths and no faith, um, technology backgrounds, spiritual backgrounds, and everyone had to had to bend a little bit to make this work. And I wasn't sure if that was going to function. You know, bringing so many different people together from so many different perspectives can sometimes be dangerous. I think it's the most productive way to do something that's new and creative and innovative, but I think it can also blow up in your face. And we had people with years of teaching experience who have said that they have learned something about themselves, that they've learned something about teaching, they've learned something about technology and faith in this process of working together. But it was, it was important to me. We, we put together a program that is a unified arc over the course of the two years. I didn't want to have a bunch of isolated learning experiences that the fellows had to weave together. I wanted to weave it together up front. And that spirit of collaboration and that ability for people from so many different backgrounds to really learn from each other has been, um, I think, both the biggest surprise and also the greatest reward in building this program. What a great note to uh, end on, Rob. Thank you so much, Kim, for introducing uh, not just me, obviously, but uh, our many listeners uh, to him. 
Thank you, Rob, for your generosity in being with us today and, and taking us into uh, leadership in a, in a context that maybe for some of our listeners is new. I think you've helped us to appreciate as we think about collective leadership, the critical role that not only uh, clergy, but lay uh, leaders in the community who are connected to faith institutions uh, play in some of the most pressing challenges of our time. So I hope you'll come back at some point and tell us uh, uh, about the first years of your program. And, uh, and we look forward to hearing uh, about your success ahead. Well, this has been a real pleasure and I'd be glad to come back. Thanks to both of you. Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, You can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's n360.expert, and you'll find us.